You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 489, the Bee Gees, Broken Hearts and Rolls Royces, Whatever You Do, Don't Become a Celebrity, and the Duchess of York and the Sex Pistols. That's all coming up after Boo Radley's and Wake Up Boo. of 14 singles released over a six-year period in the 1990s most of them relatively successful in the uk but this one of course was the most successful of all reaching number nine on the mm. uk top 40 in the spring of 1995 the boo radleys and wake up boo you see i always have a debate with a friend of mine about this who was like me a big brit popper at the time she was very into it and a little bit older than me so perhaps you know she used to go to things that i couldn't because i was too young and she sort of says now about this oh you know cringe it's so dated i don't think it's dated oh, at all no, i completely bless. disagree i think it still sounds really fresh and fun maybe because it is so synonymous with the time that it was because it was absolutely everywhere it maybe was. because it's so synonymous with that time you know but perhaps in that way perhaps it hasn't dated well but i still think it's 
it's a really good sweet pop song and i do like how uplifting it is actually i i, I i'm a big fan of that it's nice to hear it again well hello and a big Hurrah, because it's the latest from the Parish Council. It's episode 489. I'm Terence Stackham. And, well, it's the question everyone's been asking all over the media this week. Is she the masked singer? Uh, Let's get the (laughs) definitive answer from Juliet Harris. I am not sausage, I'm afraid to say, or indeed any of the other masked singer people. Though my favourite... Well, you would have to say that, you see. Indeed, yes, it, yeah, it's definitely not me, and I'll leave you to, to work out if that's true or not. Although my favourite sort of anecdote from the Masked of this year was the first contestant, the alien, turned out to be Sophie Ellis-Bexter, and she said she'd gone to great lengths. She disguised her voice using like a sort of a a vocoder or something like that to 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 you know make it her. And she said that you know she knew that if she if it was her voice, she'd get rumbled straight away because she's got such a recognisable yeah. voice. And she said she thought she'd done really well with this vocoder disguise again. She said within ten seconds of her started singing, their eighteen month old child stood on a sofa and shouted "Mummy." So, <laughs> so it would seem it would seem that she didn't do as well as she thought she did. But uh, no, I uh, I I we my work WhatsApp group of all very much enjoyed during the various lockdowns watching programs together in our whatsapp group so we were all sort of commenting and we reality ones that go on from week to week were the best for us so we all got into bake off and then we all got into strictly dumb dancing we've tried with the mass singer but we uh we we haven't we haven't found it so easy no, to I sort of get on, get on board with it so. mm. i mean even people that like it have to admit that it is awful but you just can't stop watching it but um mm-hmm. yeah so i am i am not involved in that enterprise and i genuinely i mean it man as your sex pistols would say as uh, as as they would indeed last week we looked at uh, amazing grace the film of the making of aretha franklin's gospel mm. album and also just released on 12th of december in fact uh, the bg's how do you mend a broken heart um it's a film by frank marshall exploring the roller coaster history of the bg's and beautifully made by the way incorporating archive interviews with Robin and Morris with quite moving clips of a recent interview with Barry Gibb and, of course, a handful of talking heads. But happily, they don't dominate the movie. Jules, How Do You Mend a Broken Heart covers the whole BG story from their preteen years on Australian television to Barry Gibb currently reflecting on both life and the Miami skyline. Um, did, did it do their story justice? I, I really think it did. I absolutely loved this film from start to finish. I mean, I, I, I'm slightly afraid to... I loved it so much that I'm slightly afraid to say I did in case we have another McCartney 3 incident where we just disagree so yeah. uh, so wildly. But no, I thought this was... I just thought it was so wonderful. Like you say, it was beautifully made. And I think I knew it was going to be good from the first moment where they the opening kind of salvo from Barry Gibb, the last remaining BG, the last BG standing bless him was when he said something like this is my reflection this is my story if the other two were still alive then they may very well see things differently so this is just you know this isn't definitive this is just me and I thought this is going to be really good and it just was from start to finish and and like you say the talking heads were really well chosen actually so so when Noel Gallagher popped up and started talking about what it's like to be in a band with your family I thought actually yeah that's a really Mm. good choice and then later on in the film when they wanted to talk about backlash and 
previously Chris Martin had commented and I thought oh that's nice that he's on this and then when he said oh I know about Backlash yes. I thought oh he's the perfect person isn't and he? And by the I way what was... a lovely man yes. Didn't he come across he really... as such a yes, lovely fellow? he always does and actually even Noel Gallagher came across as okay it was mm. Noel Gallagher behaving himself wasn't it but um, yeah he did come across as well I think you know he, it, I thought what he said was brilliant actually Chris Martin about how the backlash against him and he said it's like when a band becomes so massive the only thing left to say about them that is interesting is oh I don't like them everyone else likes them but I don't like them um but I just thought this it was moving I mean so moving I was in tears within the first four minutes so I, I mean by the end when it ends with sort of Barry Gibbs last kind of BG standing performance at Glastonbury and all the security guards doing stuff. I thought it was I thought it was excellent. I thought it was it, I can't recommend it highly enough. And I you know I thought it told the story very well. Yes, it was an official version. So there's always a little bit of an issue with official things in that, you know, if it's sanctioned you might not get the whole story. But I thought it was pretty honest actually. And and in the case of Andy Gibb, who they, they do talk about a bit, I could see why they wouldn't want to dwell on the details of the ending of that story i thought it was incredibly telling and touching that he joined the bgs just before he died i got the impression that they really did everything they could to try and help him through what he was going through but I, I i the other thing about it that i thought was so good apart from the fact that you really got the impression that they all loved each other very much and they didn't gloss over the fact that they that they had periods where they didn't talk where they'd fallen out that sort of thing they that I think they I think they always just loved each other very much. When one of them is asked if he misses the other Bee Gees after they've split up for the first time in the late 70s, uh, did he miss them musically? He says, oh, no, I, I miss them as brothers. And you, you get the impression that, that they, they wouldn't have been in any other band, really. They were in that band together. I hadn't, when I was growing up, I knew them because my mum loved disco music. So I knew them just as a disco band. And then I think I might have also known the fact that they'd done Heartbreaker with Dionne Warwick because she used to play that all the time. And then I think I knew that they did Chain Reaction. And I didn't realise about any of their late 60s, early Mm. 70s stuff until I got older. And it just goes to show what a talented band, what talented writers that they that whatever they turn their hand to seem to work. I just I just thought this was this was so great. I thought it was such a a good, interesting history of them. And it just, you know, told their story and also the rotten time they had off the back of Saturday Night Fever, the horrible, horrible Disco Sucks movement. That bloke, I don't even want to name him that was behind it. What a nasty man. You do have to worry about people that define themselves by what they hate rather than what they love and I just thought it was so unpleasant and obviously you know the Bee Gees didn't cop the worst of it in the sense that the Disco Sucks movement as a bloke pointed out when people took the records to the burning they weren't taking disco records they were taking records by black artists Mm. it was it was racist I mean what I know that the so the Bee Gees weren't you know that they didn't have that aspect of it to deal with but it was just still you know, I thought they, they bore the whole thing of being reduced to a sort of novelty joke band with great dignity, I think. Mm. And and also, it, it, when I was younger, I found it very funny. But it did make me realise how tawdry the Clive Anderson affair was on their programme as well Fair and how it, how it diminishes him rather than them. They, you know, I, I was a huge fan of them uh, anyway, but I thought this film was wonderful. I thought that it, it just, I couldn't recommend it highly enough because it was a film about love as well as about music, I think. And of course, sadly, it then became a film about loss. Oh, yes, very much so. And it, 
you know, a couple of things you said there is generally generally felt back in the 1960s that the Bee Gees were another in a long line of groups who mm. were heavily influenced by the Beatles. And yes. at that time, although they were popular with a string of hit singles, it did rather feel then that they were one step behind. Mm. And one of the most fascinating parts of the story I felt in this movie is how it showed that when the, the Beatles moved on to Revolver and Sgt. Pepper, the Bee Gees were still sort of copying um, mm. Michelle and Yesterday yes. and appearing on safe middle-of-the-road TV shows, as acknowledged in this movie. But then the almost accidental move to dance music in the mid-'70s and, um, in some ways, the fateful discovery of, of Barry's falsetto, because I do mm. feel, obviously, it was a big tie-in to their success in in that part of their careers, the Saturday Night Fever uh, era. But I think you know they did labour the the Barry falsetto mm. a little bit too long for the rest of their career. But back they came again, bigger than ever. Um, this part of their career, the Saturday Night Fever, is saying spirits having flown era, mm. superbly put together in this movie. Yeah. Then then another fallow period, which. As you again said, they resolved by writing really effortless number ones mm. for, oh God, everyone from Barbara Streisand to Dolly Parton, Kenny Rogers, Diana uh, Ross as well. Let's not let's not uh, forget Diana Jane Ross. Reaction was yeah, there. And of course, the minute that you you realise that they wrote something. It just sounds like them, doesn't it? Yes, That's the yes, thing. It does, and yes. I, I played, um, I've played Heartbreak a few times on my my Sunday show that I do. My my friend Tim is a very big fan of the Bee Gees. Hadn't really realised that they'd written Heartbreak, and he said during the verse, "This really sounds like the Bee Gees." And I said, "Well," and of course they then pop up on the chorus. Apparently they greatly regretted. One of them cried on the way home because they'd realised that they'd given this song away yeah. that was so wonderful. Ironically, to someone who didn't like it, Dion Warwick wasn't very keen, but as she put it, she. Cried ride all the way to the bank so uh so yeah it's uh yeah they wrote some monsters in the 80s didn't they i thought um probably uh the the most uh touching bit of all was just before the credits which by the mm. way are nearly as long as the movie itself but there was um that that touching quote from barry yeah. Gibb on his brothers he said i'd rather have them all back here mm. and no hits at all which puts into perspective really the value Absolutely. And, and also what decent people they were, I think, as well. And, and like you say, it was I mean, just the the I think the thing that made their disco era stuff just so good. I mean, they wrote beautiful, beautiful pop songs in the 60s and the 70s. As you say, they didn't necessarily have the artistic development that makes them great. I thought that Noel Gallagher put it well, actually, when he described them as, as being worth a chapter in the Book of Rock, mm. which I thought was really was a really shrewd comparison, that they might not necessarily have had the artistic depth and the sort of spanning the creative heights of people like the Beatles or, or Dylan or, or the Rolling Stones. But then having said that, what they did do was so impactful and they were so good at what they did that they, you know, that they are a big part. But I, I thought that... The thing that summed up why their disco records were so big, you you should be dancing. It's such an exciting song from the yeah. from the moment that it starts. It just makes me feel like everything is possible, and that is that is the, the kind of thing that I love in life and jive talking as well. I, I one of the last DJ gigs I did before everything shut down. I remember playing somewhere, and I was I sort of on until late, and a group of friends of mine came in after the pub had closed, and I remember one of them, particularly a chap called Lid, shall we say, very discerning. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, I wonder if what you know, I wonder if he's going to enjoy any of the music I'm playing. And within 
four seconds of joy of talking started he had already got up to dance it's just you know they, they are a band of joy and i think the, the, the this film was very moving because it also showed the sadness and the difficulty behind the joy as well and i'm just so sorry that barry doesn't have his brothers anymore this <laughs> was, was my view really but I, yeah i thought it was a a very moving and very fun film because let's face it the music was was brilliant because it's the bgs isn't it you know they they i hope that they do eventually like you say they did labor the falsetto point a bit but i hope that mm-hmm. eventually they they are reappraised because they just wrote some really really good music that was better than most music that most other people wrote in my view yes i mean if, if your legacy is that you were able to capture in the most superb way melody in three minute bursts i mean that that's mm. pretty good and the thing about saturday night fever i feel is um having been alive at the at the time um is that it, amazingly the the album uh, and the soundtrack and their contributions mm. towards it just captured the mood of mm. mid-1970s New York streets just mm. so perfectly um, that it, it's it's absolutely absolutely astonishing because I think um, if you just hear the opening bars to uh, Night Fever or indeed mm. Jive Talking whatever um, you, it's you're almost walking down you know, the, 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 mm. around Central Park and Manhattan and everything. And, and you know, it just evokes that spirit of mid-70s New York in such a dynamic way. It's absolutely incredible. In the it, UK, it's wonderful sorry. as well. Sorry, sorry. I, I, I was just going to come back and say that. And also, it's one in the eye for me. If you talk to a certain type of music snob, which I regret, Terence, I probably was once upon a time. But anyway, I grew through it. Lots of people, unfortunately, didn't. But anyway, I, they, you know, so music buffs if you ask them what the best soundtrack is of all time you know they'll t- i mean don't get me wrong i do like morricone i think he's great but they might say something like that they might say probably not john williams they might say some john carpenter stuff also you know the the the, the soundtracks of that you know they might say you know some, some really sort of credible things the best soundtrack to any film ever is Saturday Night Fever because it's one of the best albums ever made. The, the tale where they said about the, the producers, how they said they were asked if they would do a couple of songs of this film and they got the tape through, the demo tape that had you know the yeah. five songs on it for their five songs from the soundtrack i mean they just said the fact you know the, the idea that someone says oh i sent you a tape is it any good and it's got if i can't have you night fever you know sort of a, you should be dancing it's just incredible and you and you say about catching the sound of the streets i know it has been so everywhere that it's kind of overdone but that first moment in the film where john travolta walks along to staying yes. alive just it's it like you say it captures exactly. It captures the sound of New York. And they said they talked about how in the film they talk about how rough New York was how dangerous it, it was really how there was. were how it, there were blackouts how there were you know and they had a you know a youngish woman saying that she didn't feel safe to go out, 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 mm. after you know after dark and so you know the idea of staying alive it literally meant that so to have him kind of strutting along to that it's just brilliant I it's not I don't know why it isn't cool Terence because it is just what it's just one of the peaks of artistic kind of creation I think the film and the soundtrack together they're just meant for each other aren't they Yes, all I was going to say was in the UK, the Bee Gees Mm. How Do You Mend a Broken Heart is available on Sky and other platforms. Mm. And um, coming right up, do you have to be bonkers to be a celebrity? (laughs) Well, we know, (laughs) wouldn't we? (laughs) And that's next after the Bee Gees. There's a light, a certain kind of light, 
lot to pick a Bee Gees tune to me this week so with great power of course comes great responsibility so I changed my mind about five times thankfully in my own mind rather than having to repeatedly email Terence I did spare you that uh, that pleasure but um, <laughs> I, I nearly plumped for Massachusetts but uh, that's the thing about the Bee Gees if you want I decided I want to pick something from their earlier period their sort of imperious pop period and you know you're not you're not short on good tunes are you really but I thought I'd pick to love somebody because I thought it was really um it captured sort of some of the mood of the film when they were talking about the difficulties that they'd had in kind of being a band of brothers and, and the problems they'd had with their younger brother and this idea of you don't know what it's like to love somebody. I I, I just, it's so deep, isn't it? You know, it, there's so much meaning to that. And so I thought I'd put, and also it is a, a gloriously beautiful tune as well. Weirdly, the BBC used it for their indents, I think, one Christmas, which we could never really quite understand why, but it's, <laughs> it's just, it, it's a lovely song. I, I just think that it's so emotionally sensitive as well as being a gorgeous tune. I could just listen to it all day. Lovely choice. 
Um, we we were talking about uh, the Beatles and Paul McCartney recently, and one thing I learned around uh, the publicity for Paul's new album is that, uh, gentleman though he is, Paul mm. McCartney always refuses selfies with people. He says, oh, gosh. yeah, I, I only learned this recently. He says he would mm. rather chat for a minute or two rather than pose for a picture. And yes, I'm fair enough. Him, I can understand yeah, that. Yeah, I'm with him all the way there as well. But it set me wondering, of course, Jules, as an aside, as a celebrity, mm. do you have the same <laughs> selfie rule as Paul McCartney? I, I wondered. Oh no, I w- I will pop a face at anyone if they if they want me to. Not that there is that much demand, Terence. It has to be oh, said. Ha- having said this, I do I do have a a, a celebrity a proper celebrity selfie anecdote, anecdote which is um, I always get anecdote and antidote muddled up. So whenever <laughs> I use that word, there's always a split second where I panic that I've used the right one. But anyway, a celebrity anecdote. Um, I I met Ed Yezard, a real comic hero of mine, uh, a few years ago whilst campaigning for the Labour Party and um he'd done this amazing speech in our in our little sort of office and afterwards I said to him excuse me could I could I have a photo with you please because he'd done loads of photos and he said yes of course you can but would you mind please giving me your phone because I don't want to sound arrogant but I do loads of these and no one ever really knows how to use their phone properly and it always takes ages and someone's fingers over the lens would you mind if you gave me your phone we could do it really quickly and that would be great I'm like yeah okay fine and so my friend then said oh can I be in it yes you're fine so he took my phone was really nice went bang 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 took four really great pictures of all of us chatted briefly and then moved on to the next person and I thought well fair enough really <laughs> it's, it was it was and it's a great picture which is still one of my favorites so uh, so yeah it's um he, he was kind of lovely but he did basically say look I don't want to spend ages <laughs> fannying around with this kind of you know sort of uh, fumbling around and the calculator app pops up and you know all that stuff that you know when you're a bit flustered because you're meeting someone very famous which you didn't say but I think that's probably what happens to a lot of people so yeah if you are going to do selfies be like eddie and just take someone's phone whack them out and then move on i was i was very impressed i've had a few insights into what it must be like and how weird and tiresome it must be to be famous before um yeah before the pandemic it was i was with my family out for mm. luncheon at the runnymede hotel which perhaps unsurprisingly is in runnymede and <laughs> well, uh, well i mean you know where do they get these names eh yeah, it's a shock, really, isn't it? It's near Windsor. And after a few hours, we were get, we got ready to go and started gathering at the at the door. Mm. Um, when this woman got up from a nearby table and approached me, and she said, and by the way, how wrong she turned out to be. Um, oh, we knew it was you. I said to my daughter, I'm going to have to come over and say something. And by this time, my family were looking bemused. Anyway, this woman went <laughs> went on. She said. We're big fans of Rebus. We've got we've got the box sets. Oh gosh! To cut what became a very long story short, mm. she thought I was the Scots actor Ken Stott, Ken Stott. who, star- oh, who starred in Rebus. There is a resemblance, I have to say. I was going to say, I, I, you know, sort of in the vague ballpark. Yeah, yeah, you, you, the, yeah. you could sort of be him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But as I clearly don't have a Scots accent, she, you know, she kind of finally agreed that I'm not mm. Ken Stott, even though I thought she wasn't fully convinced. But there, <laughs> there was. There was one phrase she used that I've never forgotten. And she said, it's such a pity. Mm. We've been watching you all afternoon waiting to speak to you. And that phrase, watching Mm. you all afternoon. So while I'd been innocently having lunch, she and her daughter were staring at me and probably taking photos surreptitiously for all I know. And it made me to shudder to think that famous people have to undergo this all the time Mm. and all that staring but on the other hand, Jules, 
some people say you've got to be barking mad to be a celebrity anyway. Well, yes, quite. And uh, that's the thing, really. Particularly, I think, if you're a, if you're a comedy person as well, I think that's a that's a particular sort of, um, uh, you know, the idea that you're that you're trying that you just want attention and, and approval, I think. Not necessarily, but there is an element of that, I think, in all comedians. Speaking as someone that did have a punt at doing stand up 10 years ago, I would probably deny that, but I'd still know it was true. So. Uh, so, yeah, I think there is, like you say, that there is something about being a celebrity that that you I think you have to think at your, at your heart of hearts that you're a bit different and a bit special don't you really I suppose there are some people that, that don't there are some people that that become famous for doing something like sports people or something like that or or writers whose whose fame is is there off the back of something they've done I, I think a lot of people including me do have a problem with these uh, reality and structured reality tv stars and and actually I would recommend I don't know if it's still on iPlayer it should be hopefully there was a thing that was made for BBC three which I watched last year during the first lockdown which feels a very long time ago now but anyway it was it was co-written by um, or written by a bloke called Reggie Yates who I didn't realize was a writer at all he's a, a, t- a children's tv presenter that graduated now does various kind of light entertainment things and I think he, he has a show on Radio 1 or did for some time as well and he co-wrote something that I think is called Make Me Famous and it follows it's basically a fictionalised version of Love Island and it follows mm. one of the characters um, and his struggles he was in the previous year's series of Love Island, was famous as the sort of the love rat. And it's following, what is he going to do now? There's a new crop of Love Island style people. I can't remember what it's called, but it's, it's obviously meant yeah. to be Love Island. And it's a really thought provoking uh, drama, actually. I would recommend. It's very involving. It's very moving. It is, there is a, 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 a I have to give some sort of content warning about um, someone attempting to take their own life at one point. But mm. um, but it is, it's, it's really well done and it really does does explore how some people don't go into it with a big plan they just kind of you know they like the idea of being well known and of course this chap struggles because he doesn't he goes to see a branding agency and he's not clear what his brand is and the, the, the woman that he's the woman that he that he sort of had an affair with and ended the dirty on in the program she meanwhile is much sharper and has launched a clothing line and that sort of thing and it's 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 really interesting actually I think it fits well with this topic so I'd recommend that people watch that kind of explores those sort of things in in terms of being a being a sociopath to be a celebrity, this lovely headline: um, Emma Mackey, who's an actress, was interviewed by Rebecca Nicholson for the Guardian, and she's the the, the the banner quote is: "You'd have to be a sociopath to want to be a celebrity." And I do quite like that actually, because yeah. she she talks about um, being, you know, she she's in various things. On she's in a film that's about to come out. She's in various TV sort of things, and uh, she she you know it, it's interesting. She sort of says that you know this idea that um that you know that that people comment on you online and she says um she says uh, I don't really have a comfortable relationship with social media I don't have Twitter I don't have Facebook or things like that she said she'll read messages from friends on Instagram but she'll never look at comments because I don't see the point she said I, I it can be detrimental to my brain and my self-confidence and I think that's right I and she struck me as being that's someone very that might attitude. absolutely given she's 21 I think that's that's amazing really so I think she might turn on to be one of those people turn out to be one of those people that does have 
uh, you know, let the, the, her career may well have legs simply because she's she's got a balanced enough attitude to be able to. Oh, she's not 21; she's 25. But I still think that's mm. quite mature for someone in their mm. 20s. So, um, so yeah, it's it's strange, isn't it? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'd had a brief brush with celebrity myself, and I say this in the most Z-listy type way. Um, in that, you know, I I, I went on Ryland's show uh, the year before last. Now, actually, so I'm old news, Terence, 2019. I, and, you know, uh, I would have said it was last year, but it's yes, yeah, nearly two years now. Isn't well, it? because we lost a year, didn't we? Yeah, we did. So uh, it was a, as you put it brilliantly off air, a gap year in everyone's lives. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I am. So I had this kind of situation. And the most interesting about that, I it, the whole thing climaxed in me actually going into Radio 2 and met Ryan who was really lovely and the thing that I was struck about him is that there didn't seem to be much of a gap between what he was like on air and then what he was like talking to us he just seemed like a really nice guy just a really sort of you know switched on sort of very grounded sensible guy who was also you know very you know just just good fun really but the most interesting it just goes to show how fame has a very long tail now they'd advertise that they were having this sort of a Christmas party edition and you know me and, and my fellow quizzer Cliff were in and 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 they also advertised that they were having two Spice Girls on. Now, I don't think they put it very well, and I suspect this might have been deliberate, because my impression was, was that they would be there in the studio when I went. It was the last Saturday before Christmas, and they weren't. They were on the phone. Uh, Emma Bunton was on the phone, I think, and then Jerry Halliwell was on the phone later on. When I turned up, there was about somewhere between 50 and 100 people downstairs wow. opposite the stage door, opposite a sort of the Wogan house, people that know it, which is Radio 2's building. It's around the corner from BH, but it's um, it's... Yeah, it's it, it it's mm. sort of on a little kind of the entrance. It's almost on a side street, really. You have to, you're not sort of necessarily. It's not a big front door. You know, there's security, and you have to go. And I still can't believe that I my mug was on a security pass. For the, I'm actually wearing the cardigan that I was wearing. On the oh yes. Pass, but it's my lucky cardigan. But um, but yeah, I I thought, and then because when I went upstairs, I was collected by a a BA who didn't seem a broadcasting assistant who seemed you know sort of in her early twenties. And when we got there, uh, we were in the sort of the studio and the production team there and everything uh, someone said to Ryland you know I said to him the Spice Girls not here then he went oh no they're on the phone and I said well you know not everyone obviously thinks that and someone said there's about 50 to 100 people downstairs and there was this kind of mild panic as to what these people downstairs were going to do when they found out that the Spice Girls <laughs> were but bearing in mind the Spice Girls I mean, they, they've had a couple of comebacks, haven't they? Mild ones. But given that the Spice Girls' heyday was 20 years ago, you know, there was a, there was there was quite a sizable crowd yeah, of people that yeah. went on a wet Saturday afternoon, which was the last one before Christmas. I mean, looking back on it now, given what what you know, given the circumstances we're in, where no one can go out really, and and central London is deserted. I remember it took me 20 minutes to walk down to get onto a tube from Oxford Oxford Circus because the the crush of shoppers in the you know the last Saturday before Christmas wow. the idea yeah. that you would want to go as a fan that you'd think oh these are the ideal conditions in which to wait outside <laughs> Wogan House for you know that I I went in halfway through the show and the impression was that they had been there all afternoon from what one of the production staff said and it makes you think you know god it, it, it is fame has a long long tail doesn't it it's and and of course as a as a once famous person I I did have a conversation with someone once I won't say who they were who, who had had a public eye career and then stopped having a public eye career and they said the worst you know the worst that they, they laughed it off they were very they were very sort of good about it but they said they get people going hey 
didn't you used to be? Oh, yes. And you'd think, wow, isn't that? And, oh, yeah. I have to backtrack very briefly. I've just realised. When I was telling the Eddie Izzard story, I yeah. used the pronoun he. Eddie Izzard goes oh, by the course, pronoun yes. she now. But at that of point, course. I think Eddie was still using the pronoun yes. he. But I just want to say I'm I'm conscious of, of, of that. Yes. You see what I mean? Although Eddie was wearing a, was, was sort of already in his, what he, well, I'll use the phrase that she, that, that she now used. Yeah. Came, she came in and was wearing a, a, a shortish skirt and high heels. Uh, this is off the topic, but it's a good story. I think he was wearing. She was wearing a, 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 a sort of a skirt and heels and lipstick and everything. So sort of walked in, said, "I'm not going to talk to BBC camera crew and tell us hello to everyone in this room." So Eddie is all shakes 45 hands, which I thought was just great anyway. And I'd had to make a, well, me and a friend of mine had to make the stage, and it was basically pallets stacked up. And we took one look at Eddie Izzard's three-inch heels and thought, "How on earth is this going to work?" And Eddie Izzard just took a flying leap and landed on the top of this kind of slightly precarious stack of three pallets and upon seeing my shocked little face said it's okay I am an action transvestite so uh, <laughs> so I very much always think of Eddie as an action transvestite but yeah being famous is a it's a strange world I, and how strange for you as well to be mistaken for being famous when you weren't or for being literally somebody else well exactly that was the very peculiar. Mm. One of my, my my most startling experiences of seeing mm. celebrity woe in action was um, mm. many years ago, my then girlfriend and I we were up in the West End of London and we went to the theatre and then we went for supper at Joe Allen's, the restaurant uh, that was in the heart oh, of yes. theatre mm. uh, in uh, area in Exeter Street near Covent Garden. It's moved now, still going, but it's moved. Anyway, at the next table, this is sort of the actors uh, theatre, at the next table, dun 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 dun, Joan Collins. Oh, wow. Um, that Now that is, that, with all celebrity. due respect for you, or Ken Stott, that is really famous, celebrity. isn't it? Turned out she was playing um, Amanda in Noel Coward's Private oh, Lines at yeah, the okay. just around that's, the corner. That's not a bad casting, actually. I can no. see how that would work. Anyway, we were all minding our own business. When this bloke with a, a camera burst through the front doors and ran, literally ran in, stood at Joan Collins' table oh, wow. and started taking multiple photos with the flash going off like a strobe. It was absolutely awful. It was pre-digital sort of digital days as well. So it was all that sort of whir, whir, click, whir, mm. whir, click. Oh, ouch. That's so awful. The chap she was dining with jumped up. Joan Collins started screaming. Uh, <laughs> The, Which is, the, is, is, is the, the sort of, you know, the demure reaction one would associate her with. But I don't blame yes. her at all. Really. Oh, she did it in a really classic way as well. She sort of put both, uh, each hand <laughs> to her cheek and kind of like, like, uh, like you know, have the, a horror the, scream. That's yeah, great. that's right. Full horror scream. Well, that's and, right. <laughs> and uh, the photographer ran back out onto the street, uh, pursued by Joan Collins's date, her mm. beau, if you will. And, yeah. um, after some sort of normality resumed, um, Joan Collins, she had sort of apologised profusely uh, to everyone around her and said that well, she wasn't, goes... It wasn't her fault, though, was it? No, but the, for the disruption. And she said mm. she goes... She, I remember her saying she went th goes through this nearly every day. Well, and that she ridiculous. Ref refuses photos when she isn't fully made up. And she wasn't. She'd taken off her... Yeah. Um, stage uh, yeah. makeup, enough, and yeah. she was like, you know, sort of raw, as it were. And um, everyone, you know, at the nearby table sympathised with her. Well, mm. um, 
Well, she left straight away, which I thought was rather sad. Didn't didn't finish the meal at all. Well, but, that's such a pity. Yeah, but lo and behold, after she'd gone, the waiters all brought over champagne to the tables of her neighbouring diners, including that's us. That's nice. Yeah. Saying it was courtesy of Joan Collins and sorry for the disruption. But again, it made me wince to think of going through that Every day. Every day, it's just not worth I, it. I, I can't, I can't imagine just how horrible that would be. Actually, it must be so, so unpleasant. Although I, I can to, to bring the mood up a little bit, I can give you a story. This came from the someone wrote into the Fortunately podcast, and I, know I always bang on about that, so I, so I won't. But in terms of celebrity dining experiences, uh-huh. someone talked about their tale going to a Chinese restaurant in Liverpool in 1990, I think. So we're talking some years ago, but I think that the, the timing is important. And she said they went to a Chinese restaurant. It was in January, and she said the pl- oh, it might. I don't think it was New Year's Eve, but it was around that time. And she. She said the place was completely rammed. It was a Saturday night and it was round the corner from the theatre in Liverpool, which was doing the panto that year, which I think was Babes in the Wood. And this is such peak 1990 panto. The stars were one of the Nolan sisters and Stefan Dennis from Neighbours, I think. And and so they were they were on the next table. And this woman was there for a Hindu. (laughs) <laughs> now, of course, if we again spool back to 1990 uh, for younger listeners, attitudes were a bit different then generally. And she said that someone, I think the the the, the maid of honour, had booked the hen a gorillagram which is basically a hairy oh, man as a stripping. Now, the, now the, sort of, you know, the place is rammed. The panto people are on the next table. You know, everyone's sort of squeezed in and, and you know, having a great raucous time, at which point the gorilla gram burst, literally bursts in this bloke, heads over to the table and starts, you know, starts doing his thing, except he got the wrong table oh, no. and went to, so basically started stripping off in front of Stephen Dennis from Neighbours and one of the Nolans. So, so it turns out that being famous is a hazard for reasons that you wouldn't have even predicted. I've got a picture of the face of the Nolan sister. <laughs> I mean, can Jesus you imagine? You know, exactly. And also that poor blameless Stephen Dennis's yes. neighbours. What if he hadn't been? What if he thinks that is what Britain is like? What if he hadn't been before? <laughs> Oh, Lord. Uh, so don't be a celebrity. Is, no, is basically, if, if you can possibly avoid it, or, then or don't. Or oh, you are going to be a celebrity. Jump on top of pallets like Eddie Izzard did and be, and be very nice. But, yeah, we completely understand why it might not be ideal. Coming up next, Sarah, Duchess of York and the Sex Pistols. <laughs> Together at last, yeah. That's right after Carol King.
there's a, a bit of a misapprehension about Carole King that she spent mm. the first couple of years in the 1960s creating loads of hit records with Jerry Goffin mm. and then disappeared until she recorded Tapestry, which, by the way, 50 years ago this month in 1971. Don't say that, man. She was a veteran of 28. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, not nice that the elderly can still play yes, great music. But, uh, of course, she was still writing great songs right through the 60s, including oh. this one about the street that uh, she and Jerry Goffin were living in in, um, in New Jersey. Oh. And But, of course, it was a huge hit all around the world for the monkeys. That was the original, and it's from an a wonderful album called The Legendary Demos, uh, Carol King and Pleasant Valley Sunday. And they just, you know, she just seemed to write anything that was ever any good for ages, didn't she, really? That was, that was, you know, it, it, either by herself or with Joe Goffin, you know, just, uh, just the, the talent of Carol King is just immeasurable, I think, really. And I, and again, you know, she's had that musical, hasn't she, of her life and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But I still feel that she isn't as fated as she should be really much like the Bee Gees. I, I just feel, you know, why? And, and you know, I suspect there are parallels, we'll get... particularly in terms of the songwriting. Absolutely. And and you feel like, you know, I suspect I don't want to, you know, complain about various people on this podcast every week. But having said that, there are certain male singer songwriters that are completely venerated, despite yeah. being in some cases, pretty dreadful people by the look of it. And, you know, and they, they are because they are adopted as the ones critically by it has to be said, yeah. largely male journalists and fans we don't get to hear and appreciate enough i think these other people that are also completely amazing so um so yeah i would much rather i wonder if the big music monthlies might might deign to put the D, the bgs or carol king on their covers except if, instead of you know the same three blokes absolutely now having given a bit of a boost to the careers of Meghan and Harry last week. Mm, yes, because um, they need they needed our help to sort absolutely. of help them along, didn't they? Well, we thought we'd give a, a bit of promotion to another underprivileged member of that family. Um, <laughs> wow, I am uh, my eyebrows are singed down the line from that <laughs> level of weapons-grade sarcasm. Well done. Touching and inspiring news this week that the inimitable Sarah Duchess of York has got herself a book deal with romantic story publishers Mills and Boone. I mean, um, I, 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 but I had to click the link that you'd sent me to check that this wasn't kind of some yeah. unseasonally elaborate April Fool. Words we, words we thought we'd never say. No. It's her very first novel and it's emotionally entitled Her Heart for a Compass. <laughs> Yes, it's said to be drawn on parallels of the Duchess's own life, which is obviously so terribly moving. It is an, and I quote from the publishers, immersive historical saga that sweeps the reader from the drawing rooms of Victoria's court and the grand country houses of Scotland and Ireland to the slums of London and the mercantile bustle of 1870s New York. Well, now, we're going you... to a lot of places, aren't we? Do, yeah, am I going gonna, gonna, gonna to have to put comfortable shoes on for this? It sounds <laughs> like I will. Well, George, you'll be wanting to give this plucky new author a break and I'm, I, I know you'll be pre-ordering her heart for a compass. 
I mean, just where do you even start with this? I have to say, before I, f- I fully tear into this, yeah, um, it, was... Sarah, it, it might be her first novel, but it's not her first book. She was involved in the uh, in in the successful series of children's books called Budgie the Little Helicopter, which had an adaptation, which had a brilliant theme tune, by the way. It's worth looking that up on YouTube if that's your jam. Um, in the nineties, and so which I'm going to stop left... you for a quick quiz, just mm. for a quick quiz. I'm coming to come back. Oh, How yeah. many books has Sarah Duchess? of york written oh wow now that is a question isn't it um i feel like i'm being caught out somehow um very possibly let's go for six 41 (gasps) not including her wow wow so so well well, i mean she is and this is always like celebrities writing children's books it's with the exception of david walliams who does genuinely seem to be heavily involved well uh, jerry halliwell wrote a wrote a a children's book i think and uh, and i think some so you know some people have more involvement than others shall we say diplomatically the funniest thing about the fact so she has had some success as a published author so we mustn't decry that how involved she was might be open for debate but anyway she was (laughs) she was involved so so we know we was involved Yes. 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 It comes back to that lovely phrase of someone wants coin present but not involved. But anyway, yeah. um, we, it's quite funny really that she is writing a Mills and Boone book because Mills and Boone are so famous for having a formula that you write to. There has been a BBC Four documentary called How Something Like How to Write a Mills and Boone, <laughs> okay. and my my friend who uh, my friend from uh, school once wrote to them as a teenager to say oh. She she had an aspirant writing sort of a writing um, ambitions, and she, and I think it's important to make this point. She came from a pretty working class background, and there weren't there just weren't many books around. And she said that although people might sneer at this, and I, I you know, I, although we did have books in our house, I remember this as well. She spent a lot of time with my nan when I was at them. The only stuff she used to read was Catherine Cookson, Danielle Steele, and um, Anne Mills and Boone. And yes. and so for a lot of people, Mills and Boone, particularly young women, Mills and Boone was an entry into the world of literature. And I think, again, that's why the usual suspects kind of sneer at it. Yes, it is cynical that it is written to a form. But anyway, she wrote, long story short, she wrote to Mills and Boone and said, oh, you know, I'd like to be a writer. And I wonder if, you know, it, it you know, what sort of, how would you, how would you advise me to go about it? And they sent her the guide, the, the, the formula <laughs> that they write to oh, that word. says, oh, well, you have a woman that's in this situation <laughs> and then there has to be some tension. And, and literally, and they cheerily sent it to us so Sarah Duchess of York I'm not saying that anyone can write a Mills and Boone but what I am saying is that anyone can write a Mills and Boone because I've literally you know I've seen the guide I I know how it works (laughs) well uh, what you're saying about uh, her involvement ominously it is noted that Sarah in quotes co-wrote the book with Marguerite Kay, who's already written 50 novels from uh, Mills and Boone. So one ah, yes. rather wonders who did their heavy lifting there. But, well, um, quite. Oh, may... oh, indeed, how, how heavy the lifting is, is to do, given that they literally, well, you know, yeah, give yeah, you a formula. Yes, yeah, so this is yeah. like a, a, a kind of draft copy and you just change the names. And uh, the well, location... well, you know, they say to Sarah, so what do you think this person looks like? And she'll go, oh, well, I think he's tall yes. and dark and handsome. And then they, they plonk, you know, uh, uh, Gerald or whoever it is into the kind of the narrative. Yes, it would be a Gerald. Yeah, Gerald would be good. <laughs> Pedro, so it's always a Gerald. You know, whatever, yeah. Gerald and Jane, it always is Gerald Yeah, absolutely. 
She falls into his arms in front of an open fire, clutching a glass of red wine in the last page. That's uh, always a yes. thing. You, you always have to fall into the fellow's well, arms. Absolutely. No woman has ever fallen into my arms. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I mean, it, it, the fault is theirs, Terence, surely. Yeah, but um, the, the, the Victoria Wood did a very good, um, well, it's, it's, it's not a monologue. It, it's, it's dialogue, but it's really the best bits of Dinner Ladies are when people's dialogue was basically, you could tell it was written by Victoria Wood. And Victoria, I think Victoria Wood is her character delivers it and she neatly summarises all of the kind of major authors and how they write to a formula and someone was trying to remember what they did on TV and she said Catherine Cookson it rains she gets pregnant and cuts the head off mackerel in Newcastle and she was kind of summing up all of these I don't think she did Mills and Boone but she did say oh Shakespeare and she said everyone wears long robes and it's on BBC Two and they never sit down and they all run on I mean she was really good at kind of uh, sort of scaring things so I wonder what Victoria Wood would have made of Sarah Ferguson's uh, Mills and Boone novel. Yes, well, her her heart for a compass. This may join her other huge successes in business with uh, Weight Watchers and Avon Cosmetics, for whom she's an ambassador, and of course, as you say, her budgie, the helicopter books. Which had some success, in fairness, and if it's adapted for TV and shown in different countries, I would say that was successful, actually, in fairness. Her heart for a compass. Having winced somewhat at the cheapo David Bowie movie, the biopic last mm. year. It was with something of a heavy heart that I saw that there's to be a six-part TV series based on the career, and I, actually I think career uh, fits in two senses here, of the Sex Pistols. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then I saw it's to be directed by Danny Boyle, which is hmm. not only something of a coup, but he's yeah. also about the right age. Like me, he was about yes. 20 years old when the Pistols rode into town. Now, also it's written by... Craig Pierce, who worked on, uh, he's worked on most of Baz Luhrmann's movies, mm. of which I'm a great fan. I mean, the pedigree uh, here is good. The names attached is. to this are, are good, I think. Yeah, and it's all based on the memoirs of uh, Sex Pistols guitarist mm. Steve Jones. So, Jules, which way do you think this one will go? Will it be excruciating or glorious? Well, I think, like you say, uh, who knows? Maybe that could be boring and say everything in life is in between, Terence. But um, mm. but actually, I'm interested by this. Like you say, that the people attached to it are very good. And I think the thing that makes it, um, that, that gives it a chance of being successful is that although the leads, so the person that played, the, uh, the person that's playing um, John Lydon is Anson Boone, who I hadn't heard of, but was in 1917. I think he was quite brilliant young. in it. I've seen yes. that. He was brilliant. And also Louis Part or Lewis Partridge, who was in who's in Enola Holmes plays Sid Vicious. I like the idea that they're casting young people that can act but are not very well known. I think yeah. that that gives it far more of a chance of success than you know Eddie Redmayne trying to spike up his yes. hair or whatever. I yes. think I think it gives Good it point. far more of an idea that you could, and that's why I think the film Control, which was about Joy Division by, and partly it worked because Anton Corbin directed it and he had. Um, he had uh, shot them previously so visually it looked stunning and it was done in black and white but also Sam Riley wasn't very well known at the time playing Ian Curtis he did go on to be in Brighton Rock as well I think but he um, he wasn't particularly well known and the people in it Samantha Morton so this follows the same formula in that they get a star in it that means that it gets made but the star does not necessarily take the central role the star is a supporting character so she was Ian Curtis's wife in this we've got this is an inspired casting in a way the star that they managed to attach to it to get it made is Maisie Williams 
who is excellent and still enjoying the the buzz off Game of Thrones, I think, who's playing Jordan in this. So, oh, uh, which yeah. is interesting, which is sort of a side role rather than necessarily a main role. So, I, so I think that gives it a good a good chance, actually. I mean, it's they have a story to be told, and I suppose and you might go on to say that it has been told several times so yeah. one might argue whether or not it needs telling again although tv series are i've seen a lot of tv series recently that have been uh, telling a story that has already been told in film but it's different on tv you have more space to say more things so i'd be interested to see if you know what what you would think of that but you know they have a story that is dramatic that is you know short in a way so you can do it you can get, bring out a lot of data from a short period of time um you know I, I, i'd be interested to see if this works i do have some level of hope for it i think from what from what we see i think it has more of a chance of succeeding than you know if they take the approach rather than concentrating on terrible wigs they actually try and develop the story which given that danny boyle and and and, and craig pierce are involved i think they might do I, I i might give this a go it looks like it could be all right these biopics are hard to get right because you've always got the battle between the need for a narrative against the authenticity yes absolutely but but then the queen biopic did so well against all of so who can say that the hardest aspect will be to get the minutiae right and i speak as someone who worked on Mm. the sid and nancy movie back in 1986 and also on filth and the fury 20 Mm. years ago um uh, amongst several other punk era based movies and it's the atmosphere the clothing the locations and the sheer screech of sound of 1976 you know will mm. danny boyle catch it um there's um one odd thing about this though uh, i don't know what you may not mm. have the answer because i certainly don't the publicity says they start shooting in march 2021 mm. How how are they going to manage that in the mid- middle of a worldwide pandemic? I genuinely well, don't I, know. I don't know either. We'll, we'll just have to see what happens. I suppose it's what scenes they're shooting, really. So it might be that, you know... It's it's socially even, distant punk well, rock movie. Well, they might not. They might not do the crowd scenes at this no. point. They might leave that towards the end. Sure. Interestingly, my uh, well, the other point that I saw I meant to make when talking about this was, in terms of the narrative and the story, it is based on the memoirs of Steve Jones, who yeah. was of course in the Sex Pistols. So it's not someone else trying to make up a story. At least it is based on the story of someone who is there, which gives them a chance. Uh, by the way, regular listeners will know of my love of the Simpsons. There is an absolutely brilliant segment. They did a, a, a Simpsons special for valentine's day i'm trying to get the full sort of season and episode number up so people can can look this up if they want to which tells three doomed love stories from the history and it casts all the characters of the simpsons in the role um it's uh it's from um it, it's so so it's it's a, from a slightly later series but having said that it is still really worth sort of checking out i think um I it's uh it's it's um it's it's i think it's called i'm with cupid no it's not called i'm with cupid i'm i'm struggling to find this um but it basically the last the last uh, tale of the three tales that is sort of picked in this episode love springfieldian style is what it's called and it's season 19 episode 12 and it it has sort of um the story of bonnie and clyde um the story of who they call shady and the vamp but obviously it is based on lady and the tramp and then sid and nancy which 
features oh. Nancy Spongen, a.k.a. Lisa Good Simpson, Lord. a young model no. student that walks into a pub in London and uh, the <laughs> Sex Pistols themselves. Oh um, uh, Johnny Rotten is played by Bart Simpson. Um, Steve Jones <laughs> and Paul Cook are played by two of the bullies and Nelson Muntz, the uh, school bully, is, 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 is vicious. Um, and they, uh, they, they get, uh, it, it follows the harrowing tale of Sid and Nancy's. They become addicted to chocolate. I mean, it is, it is such a fun five minutes. It is really worth watching, not least because there was a scene that was cut from it um, in Britain because it's a particularly British swear word for genitalia, which perhaps doesn't translate that way in America, which you can find no, on YouTube. They, 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 is, they don't say which, that word. Which, yeah, it's indeed, which is, which, which is then... Which is used in song when they perform in front of a crowd of unimpressed people in Texas, um, and they're introduced as live from all the way outside of Texas. It is it is a brilliant five minutes, and for me, Bart is Johnny Rotten, and I find it difficult to picture someone that isn't that isn't you know they 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 sing they don't sing Sex Pistols songs, but brilliantly they sing songs that are made up to sound like the six the Sex Pistols. So he does sing about Bart sings about killing the Pope. Um, one point which i think is is just it's just so well done i would rec- i can't recommend it highly enough it is it always makes me laugh even at sad times so yes will they be able to better lisa simpson as nancy nelson months as, as as sid vicious and bart simpson as johnny rotten it's difficult to say isn't it I rather wish I'd worked on that more than the original Sid and Nancy, to be <laughs> oh, honest with you. Oh, it's so great. I will send you the clip afterwards. Thank and you. maybe people that follow us on Twitter, we might tweet the link as well, because it is brilliant. Thanks very much for listening to us this week and any time that you choose to do mm. so. I know. We're always grateful. I'm always surprised yet grateful for it. I think Terence has more faith in our abilities. So he's just grateful, I think. Well, as both Paul McCartney and yourself won't be too busy taking selfies this weekend, <laughs> yeah, it's indeed. safe to assume that you'll have time to be on the radio. Yes, I, you know, my, I, do you remember once upon a time when people used to go, oh, you're so busy. Yes, that was in the days before I, you know, before I couldn't yeah. leave my house. Um, I will, however, be, be meeting people virtually online on Sunday evening where I do my weekly little show called Smooth Sailing, where we play a sort of cheery, uplifting, yet sort of calm and smooth tunes for a couple of hours and everyone chats along and it's it's really nice. So it's on my Mixler channel, which is mixlr.com. If you search in my name, which is Juliet Harris, I go live seven till nine on Sunday evening and you can find on the showreel button previous shows that I've done if you would like to catch up. And speaking of shows that you've already done, we're playing out with a track that uh, you featured on your show last week. I did, yes. I was. I've uh, came across this a couple of weeks ago and completely fell in love with it. I'm surprised it hasn't been more fated, but I think a lot of music that was released last year, uh, you know, couldn't reach the audience that it otherwise might have done. So maybe it's that. I don't know. But anyway, this is so lovely, and this this uh, performing artist so good. They named her thrice. She seems to have three first names, which I'm very impressed by. Um, who knows? But um, uh, who knows what her surname is? Has she got one, or is she like a Brazilian footballer? I don't know. But anyway, I think this is. A, a beautiful song and I, I just want to share it with as many people as I can this is Phoebe Alice Lou and this is Touch I've been lonely since I
You've been listening to a Parish Council production. <laughs> <laughs>